is uh, academic dean and professor of theology at Biblical Seminary. He is also the recovering dissertation advisor for uh, myself, and uh, we're honored to have him with us. The, you may be interested to know uh, that uh, Dr. Mangum's uh, doctoral work uh, was in eschatology, that is the study of the last things. Uh, and as you may have noticed, um, we have the Mayan calendar ending, Dick Clark is dead, and the Orioles are in first place. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Um, th- th- this may be a good time to cash out that life insurance. We, um, who, who would have who would have known a year ago when we were perfectly satisfied to simply have spoiled the Red Sox playoff chances, which is a picture of Big Poppy from last year at Camden Yards, uh, that uh, that this year we would now have the ambition of actually getting into the uh, playoffs ourselves. Todd is a, a Red Sox fan, in fact, and. In six hours or so, all of us will be as well since they have their last series against the Yankees. But for now, go O's, and please give Dr. Todd Mangum a warm welcome. Well, it's safe to be a Red Sox fan these days. We are no threat, as you, uh, as you well know. It's, uh, it really is great to be here. And, uh, I, I uh, I don't know, I assume that, uh, that many of you, uh, have been hosted by the hospitality of, uh, Jason and Mary Poling. Uh, we have really benefited from, uh, from their hospitality, uh, certainly on, on this occasion and, uh, when Jason was finishing up his dissertation as well. And make no mistake, uh, he, uh, he earned it. He's a very good student. I knew that. Uh, before I came here, I've heard about you. Uh, Jason speaks uh, fondly of you, and uh, I just consider it a real, uh, a real prev- privilege and uh, pleasure to uh, get to meet you, uh, get to see the work here, and uh, we at Biblical Seminary are certainly proud of uh, Jason, and uh, he in turn is proud of you, and uh, it's great to be here. Well, uh, I was invited to come and uh, contribute to this series in the book of Romans, the most theological book of the New Testament, with one possible rival, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a theological book written to Jewish Christians. Romans is a theological letter written to Gentile Christians. Many of us in the room are Gentile Christians, so, uh, so that's appropriate. But what Romans does is explain to these powerful, accustomed to being in charge, but pagan people, how and why the gospel is available to them. What it took for access to God to be provided for people who were far from God. People like you and me. And just what it took to secure such access to God. What we find out in the book of Romans is that the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of the world is on a rescue mission. By rights, He could have left the world to its own devices to degenerate, to literally go to hell in a handbag, far from God, 
resistant to His will. By rights, He could have left people like you and me just to suffer by our poor decisions and poor path. But He didn't. Instead, at great sacrifice to Himself, He took up a rescue mission that's not just an escapist, pull the fat out of the fire kind of a rescue mission, but a mission to restore and reconcile the world to Himself. By now, we're going to be in chapter 5 here in just a moment. By now, you know already, if you've been following along the book of Romans, that Paul has established that all are sinners. doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian home or at that time, if you were born in a good Jewish home, if you were born in a good God-fearing home, all that does in terms of relation to God and uh, comparison with Him and His standards, all that does is make you more culpable. By the same token, it doesn't matter if you were born in a home that never breathed the Word of God, breathed the Word God, the name of God, except in a curse phrase. You are not too far from God. Everyone is locked away from God, but no one is so locked away as to be unredeemable. No one is so far that they cannot be found. And in fact, that's the mission that God is up to and why He sent His Son. And in fact, for Gentile Christians, what we find out is that it's those who embrace and replicate the faith of Abraham that are the true seed of Abraham, the true recipients of that promise, the true beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham and his seed. And we're called to the peace of God through that faith persevering through trial, temptation, and tribulation, producing the character that such perseverance manifests. And if I'm tracking correctly, that's where you ended last week. Something like that. And so today we have three verses before us rich with theology. Now, uh, I teach theology for a living at Biblical Theological Seminary. Uh, I'm not going to take the time I would like to go even through these three verses. One thing about Romans is, uh, I mean, we've, we've heard of, uh, of pulpiteers, pastors. Uh, we had one in Philadelphia, a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, uh, that took something like five years, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, to go through the book of, of Romans. Uh, any, any, how much? We're only taking four. All right. So you're kind of hurrying through it. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Uh, I mean, any, any pastor, any preacher with a theological mindset at all just salivates at uh, the book of uh, Romans. But we're going to explore just three verses this morning. All three are telling. All three are Rich. Romans 5, 6. While we were still helpless 
or powerless. First thing to notice is, notice the we. There's not a person among us, not even Paul the Apostle, that's excluded from this state of helplessness. We're all, when it comes to having a right relationship with God, prospering under the ways of God, benefiting from the blessings of God, we are all in a state of helplessness. Pitiful powerlessness. Now, that is a message. It's easier to preach these days now that the economy is so lousy and so many people are out of work or underemployed, if not unemployed, uh, having trouble meeting the, meeting the bills. But I tell you, this is a message, a premise that is difficult for Americans to hear because we believe we're so self-sufficient and we're so powerful and we're people of such resourcefulness and initiative. But Gospel 101 is recognized that we start in a state of helplessness, powerlessness. If it were up to us to make our way to God, we would be not just helpless but hopeless. But in fact, we can have great hope because God didn't leave us in that condition. But secondly, it's, it's worth reminding ourselves just how did we wind up in this state of helpless, hopeless, powerless condition? I have three sons. Two of which have made it through their teen years. I've got my youngest back. He's here this morning. Uh, this is Jesse. Um, I, uh, I told him that uh, I would not embarrass him. But of course, I didn't mean that. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he turns uh, he turns sixteen today, uh, so <laughs> so uh, you know. And and uh, Pastor Jason, hearing that, said, uh, uh, "Man, what a great day to take him to a Red Sox game. I'm sorry, to an Oriole game. Uh, <laughs> it's the last reference I'll put. Uh, well, for a while anyway." Uh, <clears throat> But just imagine, I don't know how many of you are, are parents or parents of teenagers, but just imagine getting a call in the middle of the night saying something like this, Dad or Mom, Dad, I, I, come help me, come get me. I, I, I'm in a cage, I'm, I'm with a bunch, I'm with my friends, with a bunch of other, but we were taken away and put in a cage and they won't let me out, they won't let me go home. I, I, you got to come get me, you got to come help me. And your first thought might be, well, I've got to call the police. Where are you? Do we need to call the National Guard? I mean, what happens if the next thing out of his mouth is, what do you mean you're in a cage? What do you mean you're trapped? How did you wind up there? Well, I, I, I got arrested in a drug raid. I mean, that, I mean, I had some, I, 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 I had some weed in my pocket. But it wasn't much that, that kind of changes the situation, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, now you go, yeah, you're trapped in this, but how did you get there? I, there's a sense in which, yeah, you're still in a pitiful condition, 
But you had a lot to do with how you wound up in that cage. You're not just some innocent victim. Part of our helplessness, we need to be reminded, how did we wind up in this poor, pitiful, helpless condition? Because of our own corruption. Because of our own sinful choices, sinful penchants, sinful condition. We're, We're not innocent in the helplessness. It's worth being reminded of that nuance of that overtone in Romans chapter 5. Yes, we're in a helpless, powerless condition, but of our own doing. And not just helpless. Ungodly. In other words, this isn't the helplessness, the powerlessness of a lost puppy. We're not only powerless and without hope apart from God. Our instincts range from self-interested to downright vicious. The sin and corruption that puts us in such a helpless condition has taken hold deep into our being. Such that not only are we helpless, but we are ungodly. So, so, you see, just at the right time, when we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. It's Christ dying for ungodly people, not that are just pitiful and worthy of rescue, but are downright undeserving of the help and provision secured. And then verse 7 comes, and it's almost a parenthetical thought. Just to be clear, who dies for someone else anyway? When we think of dying for someone else, we have our, uh, our military personnel that are serving their country, serving us, protecting our freedom. And we think of, and many of them are dying for us. But recognize that kind of dying for someone else is not voluntary. As uh, George Patton once said, uh, no one ever won a war dying for their country. <laughs> you, you win a war by making the other poor sap die for his country. <laughs> I mean, uh, that, that, that's a, a foreseeable consequence. But even those on the front line of military security and protection aren't just willingly, voluntarily laying their lives down for their country. They're trying actually to avoid it. This is different. This is someone, son of God, who didn't have to do it, voluntarily 
before he ever came to take up this mission, knowing that this was going to be in store, coming and voluntarily laying down his life for undeserving people. And Paul here just stops and and pauses a moment and says, now think about this. You might lay your life down for your spouse, for your loved one, for for your kid. You, you, You might lay your life down taking a bullet, allowing the life raft to go to someone who you deem worthy, noble. This is different from that. These are people that are not worthy. All too many are not even appreciative. Not even grateful. And yet, this rescue mission entailed Christ laying down His life for people wholly unworthy, undeserving, and unexpecting. Some of them just completely oblivious and even remaining oblivious. Rarely will anyone die for even a righteous person. Though for a good, a noble person, someone might possibly, occasionally dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, and Jesus allows himself to be lowered into the shark tank to rescue such sinners. Now, it's easy to think about sinfulness and the cruelty of the cross from an abstract or chronological distance. We are inherently by nature more corrupt, more sinful than we often dare recognize. I'll show you a picture. It's an actual photograph. Uh, I I warn you, it's disturbing. But this is a picture taken not in first century Rome, not in first century Palestine. This is a picture taken less than a hundred years ago in this country. It's introduced to this uh, set of pictures, actually, by uh, one of our professors at, at Biblical Seminary, Dr. Dwayne Belgrave, who, uh, using a book by James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, uh, refers to a, a site called Without Sanctuary. Uh, and I'll let you look it up later. Now, there are a hundred different implications that could be drawn from a picture like this. The scourge of racism, uh, the, the, the sinister 
social epistemic sin that lies just beneath the surface. But by the way, this picture is not taken from somewhere in the deep south. Uh, with this, this is the Midwest in 1930 is when this picture was taken. Here's what, here's what I want you to notice here. I'm not going to keep it up for long, but look at the number of people in ties, in dress hats. People participating in this kind of cruelty, in this kind of lynching, these are business people. These are the decent folk of... These aren't jar-headed rednecks coming out of the factory on some sort of a bloodlust rage. These are quote-unquote decent people. The prim and proper people. Now, lots of theologians and historians have begun to analyze what's revealed by this set of circumstances and pictures. And by the way, there was a time in this country when people were making postcards out of this and sending it to... Can you imagine? This is what the white collar, upper crust, kind of actions that American people from the Midwest are capable of. And many have looked at this and, and, and just been astonished, been amazed and appalled that there's, there's not only a, a kind of a pack look in the eyes. I mean, look at the, this guy's laughing, smiling. It's almost a, what is this, a, a party atmosphere? Like they're on a church picnic or something. But not just a hundred years ago and far away. Uh, just this last week, uh, Ogema Heights High School in West Branch, Michigan had their homecoming uh, game. And at this middle class suburban school, kids in that school voted a girl, her name's Whitney Crop, to be homecoming queen. Did you hear about this? Did you see this in the news? Voted her to be homecoming queen. Whitney Crop's kind of homely. Um, one of the poorer kids in, in the class doesn't dress very well. So they voted her homecoming queen as a joke. She'd been bullied. She's a sophomore. She'd been bullied since she was there as a joke, made her homecoming queen, voted her homecoming queen so that she could parade onto the field with, with the homecoming king with her classmates putting her in that position as mockery. Good, decent, hard-working American people are capable of grotesque, cruel sin. And just in case the point is too subtle, 
Friends, you and I are capable of such corrupt thoughts, activities, plans, actions. While we were yet sinners, and James Cone, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, makes this point graphically and poignantly. The two guys that were lynched weren't there voluntarily. They weren't expecting to wind up on a tree when they woke up that morning. Jesus came, though, knowing full well the kind of sinister cruelty to which He was entering and what would happen to Him. He knew full well that once He entered the lion's cage, once He was lowered into the shark tank, what was going to happen? And He came voluntarily anyway. While we were yet sinners, same looks of celebratory partying, sadistic glee greeted Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ came. Christ voluntarily died for such a people. Now, you get the full picture? Get the picture of just what was the backdrop of the plan of salvation? Just what was the setting for Jesus' voluntarily agreeing to come and sacrifice His life for the rescue of such as these? For the, corrupt, for the kind of corrupt, broken, sinister, sinful beings. Sinful in instinct. Sinful in inclination. Sinful and executed action. He came to rescue, redeem, reconcile, and restore such as these. Now, I've got five minutes or so. That's the passage. That's Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. I've got five, six minutes to reflect a couple of minutes on what are the implications of this. What does this mean? This is, this is what the gospel, the plan of salvation is, what it entails, according to Romans 5, 6 through 8. What are the implications, theological and practical? Well, first of all, implications for God. What does this mean for God? Well, we find out something about God and His plans. And one thing I want to say is we're saying up front or early, it's not that God is just a grandfatherly sap, you know, that looks at this corrupt sinful humanity and and gives us a noogie and says, oh, but oh, shucks, it's okay. I mean, I don't really mind all that. I mean, I that that's not it. it it's not the kind of love that says, I, I don't really care about 
your sinfulness and your corruption. It's the kind of love that says, holy crap, what happened to my creation? This is a mess. And rather than ball it up, throw it away, and start with something else, says, I need to fix this. I'm going to take this back. Now, I'm far enough away, far enough from Philadelphia area, that I'm not in danger of someone making this my ministry. Um, But years ago... uh, I worked my way through college and seminary moving furniture. I was a furniture mover. I mean, some ten summers and holidays, I moved furniture. That was several years ago. My wife still reminds me. I can eat like I still move furniture, but it's been a while since I, uh, since I moved furniture. Um, you know, the, the principle is really simple. You start with a house that's fully decorated to live in, you pack it up, you put it in a truck, and you move it, and you unpack it, and make it livable again. Every once in a while, you'd show up at a house, and particularly when someone said, "Oh, you used to move furniture. Um, you know, we're moving. You know, three weeks from now, can you help us move?" It often happens in this context, and you go, and the people think that they're ready to move, and they're not. Did you know you were moving? I mean, <laughs> I mean, all this stuff on the shelves, they really need to go in boxes or something, you know, here. And, and you go, or, or even worse, it's a filthy mess. Um, oh, I can't get into telling you moving stories, but you show up. Uh, went to a house one time. Uh, it was a person who uh, was in the military, was about to be moved to a military base. We found out in, in talking with them. Uh, that the reason he was in the Marine Corps is because the particular judge overseeing his murder slash self-defense case had given him a choice. You can spend 10 years in prison or go into the Marine Corps. He chose the Marine Corps. Well, we went into this house and it was, it was not ready to, to move. And in fact, there were dirty dishes all in the sink. And, uh, and the first thing you do is you look around and see what, and we took the, took the lid off one of the pots. And there was old spaghetti and bugs crawling through the... Now there's a person not ready to, not ready to move. Basement was a mess. And what do you do? It was me and one other guy. I'll tell you what we did. Tell you what you do in a situation like that. If you're, if you are, choice one, you walk out and say, we'll come back when you've got this cleaned up. Or, what we did. Let's get started. Um, and, and you jump in and, okay, first thing it's got to go is this spaghetti with the bugs and boom. Here's how you take old food and throw it. There you go. It's it. Now take this outside and hose it and you just, and what we learn about the way God goes about his plan of salvation is that he's on a rest. It's a mess. It's a wreck. And he comes down and says, where do we start? 
You, Abraham. Let's start there. Let's get this corner straightened out. And then from there, we can work on the rest of the house. From there, we can work on the rest of the planet. But that's what God is up to. He's on a rescue mission that will eventuate one day in the entire planet being restored to the condition for which He designed it when He first created it. And even better, because this time it will have gone through that curse and been restored from it. Apparently, in the plan of God, a victory party for all eternity is better than just a party. But that's what we find out about about God. That's the kind of God He is. For you and me, yes, you and I are beneficiaries of a tremendous gospel. In fact, so accustomed can we grow to being beneficiaries of the love and grace and mercy and kindness of God that if we're not careful, we can think we're entitled to it. We can just presume on it. Let us not ever think, let us not ever be deceived into thinking that we are beneficiaries of this rescue mission gospel of God because we're somehow deserving. We're not. It's in spite of what we deserve, not because of what we deserve. And the Gospel of which we are beneficiaries is not made available to us so we can merely wallow in our pet sins. That's that's not it. It's not a grandfatherly Santa God patting us on the head and saying, it's okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay for all this. You just go ahead and keep enjoying the party. <laughs> um, enjoy, you know, just, just go ahead and keep on doing your pets. No. It's to transform us from the wolves, from the sharks, from the wild cats that we are. into the noble kings and queens, princes and princes that we were designed to be. Can you hear the difference in that? And what difference does it make for other people? People we're going to rub shoulders with tomorrow. Or this afternoon. Many of whom God has given so much to restore, but they remain oblivious, uncaring, undeserving. We can look at them, we can work with them. And say, man, you are are really screwed up. Your life's just a royal mess, aren't you? We can pity them, feel feel sorry for them. But just recognize 
That is the condition in which we all start. It was while we were yet sinners, while we were helpless and ungodly, that Christ came for any of us. These two are people for whom Christ died. That God still sees as people with potential for being great Christians, <laughs> for being great children of God. For such people, they're potential kingdom heirs. And for other people, they're the people for whom the gospel is still designed to reach, reconcile, and restore. What this means for the gospel of which you and I are a part. This rescue mission, this restoration mission, this reconciliation mission is not just for you and I to enjoy and benefit from like a new microwave or high-definition TV. It's a mission that we're to participate in. That once we benefit, we also engage in, in furthering. Undivided from one another, conquering. As kingdom agents, agents of the kingdom, agents of the gospel. You realize those are synonymous phrases? Agents of the kingdom, agents of the gospel. The gospel that Jesus brings, the good news that Jesus brings and which we share is good news that the king has come, is reigning, and his kingdom purposes are now pervading the planet. God is taking his planet back. God is on a rescue mission of restoration and reconciliation. Restoring the things that are broken. Restoring the people that are broken. Reconciliation with God. That is, converting former enemies to friends and allies. Reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with other people. People who have done injustice, perhaps to you. Who have done wrong and do wrong, perhaps even to you. The Gospel is a ministry of reconciliation with such people. God is on a rescue mission of restoration and reconciliation. The question is, are you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the power of the Gospel. We do thank You for Your Son Jesus, for the power that He brings, for the power of which we have benefited. And that we can now take up by the power of Your Holy Spirit and spread. I pray, Father, You might minister through Your Word by Your Spirit even this morning to give us a greater vision of what your intentions are, not only for your planet, but for us in your plan. 
Embolden us to be agents of your kingdom, of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.